0: Well, you guys ready for a little Zechariah? Yeah, we, uh, we're getting it done, uh, getting close to the end uh, of the Old Testament. It's quite a deal. I mean, it feels like a big event to me uh, as it's been, I don't know, 14 years or so, since 15, since the last time we were in Zechariah. So, and uh, the New Testament's been almost that long. So we've got work to do tonight. Uh, We left off in Zechariah chapter 1, so why don't you turn there at this time. One of the things that we should remember, uh, the value and the importance of vision. Um, But one of the things I've noticed, people get all weirded out when it comes to the things about vision and dreams, and I know that the Bible talks about that, but One thing, you know, one of the scriptures we probably know most when it comes to the idea of vision is Proverbs 29, 18, you know, where there's no vision, the people, um, as it says, they perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. You might say, well, Brett, what does keeping the law have to do with, you know, vision? Um, And why are those two things put together there in our text of this Proverbs text, I should say? Um, well, it's, it's, it's funny because I think there's a couple words there, perish, and also the word vision. These are kind of important words when it comes to this, this whole idea. The word perish, by the way, in the Hebrew text is para, um, which um, it means to um, let go, to let loose. Um, you know, like if you had a wild animal and you finally let it go, you let it loose. That's what, the, what this word perish means. Um, now, there is a little bit of a connotation in the Hebrew word of it letting something go to its own demise. Um, you know, it's like, uh, um, you know, when, when you were in, on the old farm, if you ever saw a chicken with its heads cut off, I actually saw that. Did you guys see that? That's a real thing. If you grew up on a farm uh, and you let it go and it just goes, but it's to its own demise. That's, the, that's kind of the idea. A chicken with its head cut off, yeah, the, the, the Hebrew word, to perish through wild wandering path. That sounds like a chicken with its head cut off. Um, Now you say, well, what path is the the idea of vision? Well, for many years, this proverb has been misinterpreted, I think, largely in the sense that, um, you know, people think that the translation means, that that means that a wise person Uh, must have a five or 10 or 20 year plan with vision uh, and clarity of where they're going, what they're going to do, or the future of their organization. Um, And um, that's how they take the meaning of this text. You got to have vision. Um, And I get that. And you could, I guess you could make that argument. But the idea is more um, not one's ability to formulate goals or um, have plans for your business's, you know, vision and future. That's not as much as the idea is, the, the word vision is a synonym for the prophetic word itself. In other words, without vision, the, the word from the prophetic, the prophecy of the word of God is the idea there. I, I say that because we're talking about the prophets. We're talking about Zachariah, the prophet, and he's giving visions uh, that are actually the word of God. We understand that because they made the canon of scripture. And so these visions of Zechariah are actually the word of God and it gives direction. And without, you, you can almost say it like this, without, you know, the blueprint of the Bible to show us how to go and how to act and where to go, we'd be like chickens with our heads cut off. It's not, it's not as much the vision, you know, five year, 10 year plan, uh, that, that you have some vision while you're, uh, dreaming at night. It's not as much that as the word of God is, is the main thing. Now, it just so happens Zachariah has these visions while he's asleep and these become the word of God. Um, but one thing I wanna say about that is uh, you can always trust the word of God as vision and direction. Uh, you can't always trust your personal dreams and visions. I, I've had people come up to me, Pastor Brad, I had a dream. Well, what was your dream? I'm supposed to be the pastor at Athey Creek. <laughs> I've actually had a guy tell me that. Uh, you know, like he wanted me to hand the keys to the church over. I was like, uh, well, that's not gonna happen. Uh, get out of my face. Uh, um, <laughs> that, was, that was about, oh, 20 years ago when that happened. So I, I'm thankful that that didn't happen and his vision was just the pizza that he had the night before. Um, that he saw. Um, but, but as it turns out, uh, there are legitimate people who have uh, real visions and what, what have you. But, but the idea of the word of God being the vision, the prophetic word um, for you and me, I love the safety of that. Um, I'll always let the word be the standard and not somebody's dream. Now, how do you test a dream that somebody has? With the word of God. And if it goes outside of the word of God, then that dream is not of the Lord. Um, If it's a question mark, and you're not sure if the dream is with the word, or, or then you have to wait and let the Lord confirm. Um, I, I've always uh, been troubled by some of these people. And, and there's even denominations in churches that really go heavy on visions and dreams. And they get, they get kind of weird. I've seen it uh, when I was younger. There was a lot of people in our church that used to do this as a kid. You know, I, I remember there was a uh, kind of a trend in the 70s where these young bda guys had probably smoked a little too much weed, brand new Christians, had a dream and a vision. And they'd walk up to the, the prettiest girl in church. The Lord told me you're supposed to marry me. And I always would tell the young girls, make sure and tell them, well, the Lord hasn't told me that yet. So I, I wait till I have my vision and dream to confirm. But uh, people get weird about this stuff, so watch out for that. But but, but the, the thing I love about Zechariah is he's giving clarity through these strange dreams, but he's giving clarity about what's gonna happen. Um, and instead of without vision or knowing, the people have vision because Zachariah is sharing it with them. Um, and so they're not running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They can say, here's why we're in captivity for seven years in Babylon. Here's why we're told to go and rebuild the wall in Jerusalem and the, and the temple. Here's why we're supposed to you know, do this and that. And, and, the, and the prophets gave them clear direction. Um, I, I think it's important that for us to always let the word, let the word be your guide. What a great compass. What a great, you know, the Bible says in Psalm 119, you know, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And if you feel like you're wandering, watch out. If you feel like you're running around with a chicken with your head cut off, maybe it's time to get a little clear vision from the word of God. You know, it starts with just a little wandering and then it turns out to a lot of wandering and then it turns out to a bunch of wondering, where am I, who am I, why am I even here? And people lack that kind of vision. So it's a good thing to examine yourself, um, especially after reading the word. Um, when we read the word on these Wednesday nights, I hope we're not like that guy that's in James chapter one. Uh, remember the person in James one twenty-three that looks in the mirror? Um, the word is compared to like a mirror. When you read the word, it's like looking in a mirror. He says, for if, if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass or a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, that's the word of God, that brings liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. you want to be blessed in your deeds, the things you do? Then be a doer of the word. And, and, and that's what we do on these Wednesday nights. We're getting direction, vision, clarity, and uh, for the future, knowing what's going to happen. This is great stuff. So, so basically here in Zechariah, we saw last week that Zechariah fell into a deep sleep and, um, and he's, he's been, he's having um, eight visions in one night. And, um, and that's something that uh, um, we, we're gonna see these visions as, we, we looked at two of them, even a little bit out of order. So we gotta do some repackaging tonight to get us all back to normal. But, but um, question before we go on, does the Lord still speak through dreams? I don't wanna, I don't wanna totally diminish that idea. Um, the answer is, yes, he does. Uh, so don't always dismiss dreams. Um, I do think that when the Lord uses a dream, it, it is different than the, the perhaps the typical dreams that you have. Um, maybe there's a sense of um, more meaning behind it. Maybe there's a sense of weightiness to it. I can't really articulate that. But we do know what the Bible says, you know, in Acts chapter 2, Peter gave that sermon. He said, it'll come to pass in the last days, which I believe we're living in the last days. It says, um, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Prophecy, which is a word of edification, exhortation and comfort. That's prophecy. Um, visions, uh, the Lord's giving a vision of, of you know what is to come and dreams speaks of things with meaning uh, that, that uh, um, they're meant to be seen, but also we should always test them if uh, to see if they're of the Lord or not. Confirmation from the Lord, confirmation from the word. Now in Zachariah's dreams, one of the things we showed you just as a quick review last week that um, I mentioned before uh, that some people say there's 10 visions uh, and instead of eight. And some people uh, would, would argue with me on that one. Here's my single argument that I'm gonna, do you remember the pattern that I showed last week of each one of these visions that Zachariah has, there's sort of a pattern um, of, of what we see in each one. And, and this is where I think the confusion lies. Um, the, and there were four patterns we talked about last Wednesday night. Um, it always starts with the inter- introductory words of each vision. Then there's a description of what he saw. And then there was a question always asked. And then there was an explanation uh, or answer to that question and an explanation of what the vision was. And we see this as a pattern. This is why I count those as eight instead of 10. Um, there's there's a couple I can see why they might be tempted to split up uh, two inv- visions. Um, we'll talk about some of those uh, this evening. Um, you know, perhaps even um, the second one, some people might even say is two, and I'll show you why. But, um, but all that to say... Um, this the, on on Wednesday night last, we we saw the first vision, um, and that's really uh, you know uh, verses seven all the way through seventeen. We saw that last Wednesday. We called that the Rider in the Myrtle Trees, um, and um, and the, the operative thing there was um, we had the the one who was in the Myrtle Trees that was we, that was Jesus watching the Jews, the people of Israel, and there were um, angels riding around on, on horses, and they were seeing. Um, that the, the nations were at rest or living in peace. And now you think, oh, that's so wonderful, but it wasn't. It, it, the question was sort of raised, how much longer will the enemies of Israel live in peace while Israel's under their oppression? That was the question. And the answer that we found was the Lord was saying not much longer, that he's gonna come and uh, comfort them and deliver them and protect them. That was, the first vision is actually a really good thing for Israel. Um, the Lord's protection upon them. And we saw that vision number one, the rider in the myrtle trees. Vision number two, we begin tonight, and we'll call this one uh, the vision of the four horns. Um, If you want, uh, you can call it the vision of the four horns and the carpenters, the four carpenters, if you want. This is why some people call this um, two visions, but I see them uh, as one, and I'll show you in a second why. So the, the vision of the four horns, or the vision of four horns and the four carpenters. You you make the choice on your notes. Um, But all that to say, um, let's read verse 18. It says, "'Then um, I lifted up mine eyes and saw, "'and behold, four horns. "'And I said unto the angel that talked with me, "'What be these?' "'And he answered me, "'These are the horns which have scattered Judah, uh, "'Israel and Jerusalem.'" And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, what, uh, what come these to do? And he spake saying, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man did lift up his head. But these, the carpenters, are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So you got some horns and some carpenters. You say, Brett, I'm totally lost, that's wacko. What in the world is the Bible talking about? Well, there's some things we gotta remember. And if you've been through Bible study with me for very long, one of the things you start to see is biblical typology. And there's symbols that you start to recognize. So let's see if you guys remember, what is, what is the horn in, in these sort of visions and prophecies? And what, when we say what does it mean? Power, authority, um, and often specifically of two main things: nations, or even the leaders of those nations. So, like if you remember in the book of Daniel, you know you got the ten horns, but then you got a little horn that rises up. Remember that? And even in the book of Revelation, it talks about. And we know the little horn is. If you read through the story, it's it's the Antichrist. Um, So there's these world leaders that are the the authority or the powers. Um, The horn was the speaking of that authority. It's a weird image for us because unless you grew up on a farm with um, horned goats or a ram with horns, it doesn't seem that powerful. But if you've ever been butted by a ram with horns, you know what, in Bible time, you're like, that's a good good symbol of power. Has anybody ever been butted hard by a a goat or or a ram with horns? (laughs) I saw a few hands like... Yep, yeah, that was me. Uh, it, it's not a pleasant experience. I'd almost rather get kicked by a horse. Uh, and some of these, these rams and stuff, these, these things have some power. And so in biblical times, that was the symbol, the, the, like a ram's horn smashing uh, with power and the authority. So um, speaks of the nations or world leaders. Okay, so we can kind of already zoom in. We're talking about probably four nations or four leaders of those nations. Um, and, and then um, we'll talk about the carpenters in a second. Let's first identify, or at least attempt to identify, the four nations that are being referred to here by Zachariah. And it, 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 it's a tricky, uh, there's three main interpretations I'm gonna give you, and I'm not gonna land on one particular one. Maybe all of them are right, because if you recall, in prophecy, sometimes there's dual fulfillments of Prophecy, maybe that's part of the deal. Um, in fact, uh, one of those, uh, one one of the three actually fits in with the other one. Well, well, as a dual fulfillment, I'll show you what I mean. But, um, let me just kind of go over this a little bit. Um, historically, some people take a more historical view when Zachariah says these four horns or nations, um, they they follow kind of what happened, you know, you had the Assyrians. Uh, remember when uh, Rabshakeh the Trashtaka and all those guys, uh, Sanhariv, or Snacherib as we call him. Uh, remember that whole thing, the Assyrians, that might be uh, horn number one. And then you had the Medo-Persians and then the Babylonians and then the Egyptians. So it, historically in Zachariah's time, you might even be able to say, these were the ones who uh, did the, 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 that are the four horns. And that's more of a historical view. Um, but if you look at it more in a prophetic sort of light, um, prophetically speaking, you might tie it in better. And I, I would lean probably this direction to the Daniel chapter two uh, nations that are talked about. Remember the remember the uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and there were really um, uh, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persian empire, the Greeks and the Romans. Remember the head of gold was Babylon. Uh, shoulders and arms of, of silver were the Medo-Persian empire. And the belly of brass would be Alexander the Great, the Greeks. And then the legs, the iron legs would be Rome, the Roman Empire. Um, and so th- this could be following those four horns, uh, histor- uh, prophetically speaking, following Daniel chapter 2. Um, that could be too. So one's more, you see, one's more historical uh, from Zachariah's point of view. But one's more prophetic, speaking of those coming nations that the prophecies of the Bible speak uh, of. But there's a third one that's also prophetic, but some say it's way off in the future, more like in our time. And this might be that dual fulfillment. Uh, if, if the Daniel 2 four nations uh, are mentioned, what if, what if we're talking about four nations uh, that are mentioned in a future role where they're gonna uh, cause Israel trouble? Um, and some will say that this chapter, this next chapter actually, starts to speak of the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 and 39 which is the uh, great prophecy of the Gog Magog invasion. And there's confederation of nations. Um, Boy, it sure is interesting to watch what's going on, by the way, in the world right now. Uh, You know, people are so focused on Russia and Ukraine and understandably so, but um, there's a lot of stuff going on um, uh, that has more to do with Israel and Russia. And, And the reason you say, well, but don't you care about the Ukrainians? Of course, and we pray for them daily. Um, and it's a horrible situation, the whole thing, it's horrible. But as a Bible prophecy person, we don't really see the Ukrainian-Russian conflict as something that's significant prophetically as much as what is Gog Magog gonna do in the future, the, the leader of Russia and the, the country of Russia, and then it's confederation of nations, and, and it includes Iran uh, in Turkey, and, um, and, you know, even Sudan. And there's a list of nations there um, uh, that we could talk about. But um, th- one of the articles I saw just the other day that I was like, man, people don't even see this stuff going on. Uh, the Tur- Turks, um, they closed their airspace, according to the Jerusalem Post, to planes carrying troops from Russia to Syria. Um, for some reason, Putin is moving a bunch of his troops to Syria. Um, and you're like, well, wh- what's that all about? Uh, I don't know. But it doesn't make sense. It seems to me if I were uh, pooty poot, I 'd be moving trying to move uh, people to actually keep me from you know being destroyed, because uh, he, he's losing. it seems you know and, and, um, and, and yet he's moving his soldiers, so that the, 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 you know, the nation Turkey, who's tried to ride this sort of medium between uh, Ukrainians and the Russians, and they're trying to sort of be the peace broker in the middle, um, uh, they couldn't help but notice um, their airlines were being used. Uh, and their airspace was being used. The the article says, Turkish airspace has been closed to military and civilian planes carrying troops from Russia to Syria after consultation with Moscow. um, uh, Turkey's state broadcaster, TRT, um, cited Foreign Minister Melut uh, Cavuscu Uh, saying on Saturday, NATO member Turkey has good relations with both Russia and Ukraine, has sought to mediate war between them. He said, we closed uh, airspace to Russia's military planes, and even to civilian planes going to to Syria and carrying soldiers. Cavusoglu uh, was quoted as saying to the reporters on a plane on route to Uruguay, he said permission had been given for three month periods until April and then the flight stopped. The, the question that might be obvious and the reason the Jerusalem Post is interested, why is Russia putting more troops in Syria at the Northern border of Israel? And if you know the Gog Magog scenario, Russia, the Bible says at some point in the future, we'll attack Israel. And right now you kind of say, well, there's no reason for them to attack Israel. Um, did you see that that, uh, Putin's trying to make a reason? Uh, There's, uh, Man, I'll probably talk about this in my next Prophecy Update, but there's a church in Israel that pushed Putin. You think he's got other things to do right now? Uh, But he he told the Israelis, hey, that, that church in Jerusalem, that's ours. That's like Russian sovereign soil where that church is. And the Jews are like, what are you talking about? And he's like, nope, that's ours. It's almost like the bully that says, you know, at school and pushes you and says, you know, that's my lunch. And it's like your lunch, but it's like, nope, that's my lunch. Um, those are my tots, you know, or whatever, um, <laughs> if you know the, the routine there. Um, but uh, but that's, that's what Putin's doing. He's saying, that's our church, by the way, and that's our sovereign territory. And the Jews are like, uh, no, it's not. Um, but it's almost like he's looking for a reason to uh, go and be enemies with Israel, which is kind of interesting. But I digress, and I'm way off course. I probably shouldn't even have gone there. Um, okay, so, so it's possible that those four nations could be futuristic Gog Magog nations that go against Israel that will then raise up these four carpenters. Now, let's talk about the carpenters. Um, uh, this word could be somewhat uh, d- uh, d- deceiving to us. Uh, the Hebrew word here is harash, uh, for the word carpenter, um, which uh, there's several different meanings. One is a fabricator, an artist a uh, skilled craftsman, um, you know, blacksmith even is used that word. Someone who's like you know, good at with their hands making stuff. But if you look up in the Strong's Dictionary, there's a second meaning uh, and here, the strong number and everything for you Strong's people. Um, there's an interesting word that is a second definition, this word harash, which means skillful to destroy. Skillful to destroy, that, that actually fits. Um, who's skillful to destroy? Well, as it turns out, um, I, don't you love watching these kind of things? Uh, like there's people that are really good at demolition, like making buildings fall and that's, that's, that's a skill. I could watch this all day long. These uh, watching these huge buildings go down and stuff like that. But in a sense, I, you almost need to have this sort of destruction uh, imagery. This is my best favorite one right here. Check that out. That's, that's, a, that's quite a dust cloud there, all that. Anyway, I should probably stop. Um, I could watch that all day. <laughs> anyway, um, so the carpenters could be um, uh, several things here. Uh, I'll, I'll throw out to you. Uh, possibilities. Um, uh, there, they could be uh, the, um, the Medo-Persian Empire, um, uh, the craftsman number one, um, who would eventually destroy... Um, the nations that caused Israel trouble. Let's go back to our text and I'll show you why I'm saying this. Um, verse 20, the Lord showed me carpet, four carpenters. Then said I, what come, of, uh, what come these to do? Um, I like the King James there. Um, what come these to do? And he spake saying, these are the horns which have scattered Judah. So any nation that caused the Jews to scatter, which we could talk about those four horns. Remember um, the Babylonians, Uh, the Medo-Persians, any of those groups that caused Jews to scatter. Those are the four horns which have scattered Judah. But these, the carpenters, middle of verse 21, are those that come to fray them or to defeat them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations that have caused the Jews trouble. These carpenters are coming to destroy them or take them out of commission, um, uh, which lifted up their horn, that is their power, their authority, over the land of Judah, specifically Judah around Jerusalem. Um, So some people say, you know, the Lord used the Medo-Persians, craftsman number one, to destroy the Babylonians, which they did. Remember uh, Belshazzar and the handwriting on the wall? Maybe that's craftsman number one. Some say craftsman number two would be the Greeks um, who then destroyed the the Medo-Persians. And then craftsman number three, the Roman who came in and ultimately wiped out the Greeks. So then what about uh, craftsman number four? Who is that? Don't know for sure. But do you remember if we, if we are following some of Daniel's prophecies, which Zacharias seems to be doing as we're reading this, um, there's an interesting thing about the Roman Empire. Who conquered the Roman Empire? Anybody? No one conquered the Roman Empire. In fact, they never were really defeated. The Roman Empire is still kind of active in sort of a way. Um, That's why it's interesting in Daniel's statue of Daniel chapter two, or I should call it Nebuchadnezzar statue. Do you remember the old Roman empire went to iron legs and then what happened? It went to feet of part iron, part clay and it didn't mix very well. Remember that whole thing? Um, And and it says in the days of those 10 toes of those feet of iron and clay, um, it talks about the last days of the end of the world. So it's still the old Roman empire, which is still active today. Um, You might even call Europe the old Roman empire. Um, or maybe even look at it um, like the European Union is somewhat of the Roman Empire. But in the days of those 10 toes or kings, the, the, the prophecy goes, um, the, the, the Lord would cut a stone without hands. You say, Brett, what are you talking about? Well, this is Daniel 2. two and let me just quickly review this. Those of you that went with Daniel just a few months ago. In the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever for as much as thou sawest the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Who's the stone there? Jesus, not cut with the hands, not a man-made kingdom. This is Jesus, a stone cut without hands comes down the mountain, it says "Um, in broken pieces, the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver. That's all those empires and the gold and the great God have made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain. The interpretation thereof is sure. Could it be that carpenter number four is actually Jesus? That's an interesting thing to ask because Jesus is the one who's gonna ultimately destroy the Roman empire uh, that... that uh, mixture of iron and clay and the 10 toes in the last days, the Bible says, and set up his kingdom. So that's just something to think about. I wouldn't die on this battlefield uh, of this, but um, this is an interesting possibility of the fourth carpenter. If that doesn't work, then you might have to try to figure out, well, who are the carpenters? Um, aren't they a singing group from the 70s? Um, yes, uh, but uh, that's probably not part of this vision. Um, uh, so, uh, so there you have it—the carpenters and the, um, the horns. That's the vision number two that we've looked at. So, um, so interesting. Um, as as we finish up here, we've got vision now number three. Um, uh, and by the way, um, you know, vision one was to protect Israel. Vision number two—who will protect Israel? The 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 craftsmen or the carpenters with the hammer? Um, is the idea there. Uh, they're gonna destroy or demolition. Demolition day is the idea with these carpenters. So that brings us then to vision number three that we see here in chapter two of uh, Zechariah. Um, and, uh, and this is called the measuring line. The vision of the measuring line is what we'll call it. Uh, but it includes a lot of stuff. Um, so the measuring line is just sort of a title that we give to it, but it's got a, a lot of components. So let's take a look, verse one. I lifted up mine eyes again and I looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Do you guys remember in Ezekiel a guy we used to call measurement man? Remember that guy? Um, I wonder if this is the same guy. Like maybe, you know, Zachariah is seeing a vision of the same measurement man that Ezekiel saw. Um, now you say, why? does the Bible care about Mr. Measurement Man? What's the big deal with measuring everything? I remember when I was a kid and I got my first tape measure when I was working for my dad you know, in construction, I was like six and I had a tool bag and, and I remember when I got my first tape measure, I went around measuring everything because uh, I was curious, how long is that? And I'd measure it. Well, there's a guy in the Bible that's like that too. Um, but he's measuring things like the temple and uh, the property of Israel and the boundaries and the borders of Israel and Jerusalem. And the Lord cares about his land, his city, his people. So measurement man may be the same guy. If you're curious on that, you can go back to Ezekiel chapter 40 and also Ezekiel chapter 47, Uh, we saw Mr. Measurement Man. So it might be the same guy, but he is a guy who's measuring stuff as it turns out. Verse two, then said I, whither goest thou? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof? And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth and another angel went out to meet him and said to him, run, speak to this young man saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I say, uh, for I, saith the Lord will go, uh, pardon me, will be under a wall of fire round about And will be the glory in the midst of her. Wow, interesting. Now, there's another uh, mention here of something that makes you go back if you're a student of Ezekiel 38 and 39 um, of the city, or Jerusalem and and Israel, um, with cities without walls. That's the imagery of Ezekiel's prophecies. Um, It's interesting because, you know, up until recent modern history, all cities that were worth anything had walls until we uh, got aircraft. And bombs and um, intercontinental ballistic missiles and stuff like that. Um, it was actually the Polish who had to learn the hard lesson in World War One. Um, that have you ever wondered where all the Polak jokes came from and stuff? It's it's very unfair for the most part. But the reason that kind of came down it had to do with World War One, and and you know the Poles built a bunch of walls around their cities, not knowing that the Germans had their you know Red Baron uh, fighter ace uh, guys that could fly over and just drop you know, handheld drop bombs and, and what have you. And, and, uh, and, you know, they can just blow through the walls with the artillery of World War I. And so, um, it's, it, you know, people thought, what a bunch of idiots, they built walls in a day where walls don't work. Now, you know, when, you, when Ezekiel wrote that in Ezekiel 38, um, what did he write? Well, Ezekiel 38, verse 11 and 12 is kind of what we're comparing, the comparison. It says, and thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages and I will go to them that are at rest that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land." So this parallels what Zachariah is saying, this whole city without walls. But Zachariah says something that I find intriguing. When he talks about, uh, he says, "'For I, the Lord, saith, I will be a wall of fire "'around about a wall of glory in the midst of her.'" Have any of you looked at what Israel has over there that's used every day? In fact, it was used this week with Hamas and it's used from Lebanon. They're uh, technology that we helped them develop thank the Lord, Um, Iron Dome. Have you guys watched this at work? If you're curious, look it up on YouTube when you get home. Don't look it up right now, you guys with your iPhones and stuff. Um, But yeah, Iron Dome is one of the more amazing technologies. Um, You know, uh, like 95% of everything that Hamas and Hezbollah and the, you know the enemies of Israel shoot over in missiles and rockets, um, they just there's an Iron Dome they call it, but it's it's basically um, an invisible wall of fire, kind of like it's talked about here. If you see how it works, basically um, the Iron Dome system sort of triangulates where these uh, old school rockets and missiles uh, are coming from and shoots them in the sky before they even uh, get to Israel. Um, By the way, if you saw this last week, Hamas tried to fire some of those rockets again. Their rockets are really um, old school and uh, out of date. And uh, so fortunately, they don't hit very good. They don't have really any aim. They just try to lob them and hopefully hit something of of importance. Um, But, uh, you know, kind of sad when you watch these people trying to destroy Israel. Because just a few days ago, one of their rockets went up and then came right down and uh, hit a... uh, uh, I think it was an elementary school. But fortunately, it was at nighttime, so the kids weren't in the building. But it just shows you how primitive their weapon systems are. But, you know, that basically Israel shoots them out of the sky before they even really get into any place of safety, uh, of, of where it could be effective. Um, I almost wonder if this is the Lord's way of, can, I'm going to be the protection around them, this invisible, fiery. That's what I, Iron Dome looks like. Or maybe it's going to be literally the Lord just protecting them, either way. But... Um, the thing is about this, uh, you know, the Jerusalem will be an inhabited city without walls. Curiously though, did you know Jerusalem still has walls right now? Uh, they built a wall back, uh, you know, they started it in the 90s. And it, you know, it's really kept terrorism out of uh, the Jewish area of, is, of Jerusalem. And you have to go through checkpoints and go through walls. Uh, you know, and some people are totally against walls. But as it turns out, the Jews have had very little trouble with bombers and stuff like that since their uh, walls um, have gone up. They, they've only had a problem with people with knives in their hands for the most part and stuff like that. But, um, but all that to say, um, in Zechariah's times, the walls were built back up from being destroyed. Um, so why talk about it with, without walls? It's the future. God's talking about the future. The old city of Jerusalem. Now. Um, Uh, A little geography, a little help for you on this. It's kind of interesting because even today, Jerusalem has ancient walls that are still there. Um, If you kind of see, here's Israel. And as you zoom in, you know, Jerusalem is actually a pretty good sized city today. It's a large city, very modern uh, city, especially if you're looking at the Middle East and what have you. But this is the city of Jerusalem today. If you were to show where the walls were in Zechariah's time, here's how big it would have been right there. That was Jerusalem in uh, Zechariah's time. So um, it's very, very small, it seems. Um, now the walls that you see here, and this, this, by the way, is a picture we took of just the part of the Jaffa gate. For you guys that are here in the building, this bigger picture is cooler. Um, but it, if you go out this gate, it takes you to Joppa, uh, where Jonah went and all that stuff. But, but this, this city, the wall, you know, oh, the ancient walls of Jerusalem. People go to Jerusalem and they think they're looking at the ancient walls. These walls actually are only 500 years old. Um, They're from more of the Ottoman Turk era. But if you were to dig down along the wall uh, and dig down into the dirt, the stones get bigger and bigger and bigger to where you actually get down to the stones of the Solomon era wall and what have you. So um, really the walls that are there right now are just 500 years old. They're fairly modern as far as Israel times go. And the walls you see, like if you're standing up on the Mount of Olives and you um, are looking at the Temple Mount, there's a picture we took there. um, You can kind of see the outline of the, of the Ottoman Turk wall that's there right now. Um, uh, for you that have the wide picture, it's a little better. Um, but all that to say, um, uh, it's a beautiful wall, but this is the brand new 500 year old wall compared to all the old ancient walls of Jerusalem. But, but as it turns out, the Bible sort of speaks of a futuristic time where it'll be a city without walls. And so that raises a question. Um, uh, do these walls have to be destroyed? for Ezekiel 38, 39 to happen? Um, or do these walls not really count? Because the, the most of the cities outside of these walls. Like uh, you saw the, the size difference of Zechariah's Jerusalem and then today's Jerusalem is so giant and huge. You could, Zachariah would have said, wow, that's a city without walls because it's so huge, and there's no walls to protect it. So it could happen. Um, but Jerusalem in Zachariah's time was about the size of Donald, Oregon, just for you guys that are trying to get perspective. Um, today, it's Jerusalem is huge, uh, you know, a million people. Um, so um, all that to say, Jer- Jerusalem, uh, that's what is talking about, a time when there'll be um, city without walls like Zechariah. So, so you can kind of see the Zechariah-Ezekiel prophecy sort of talking about similar themes, which makes you wonder, could he be talking about the nations around that time? That's something for you, Bible prophecy buffs. You can connect the dots there and see as you look at it. Um, so we have the measuring line, uh, the man, uh, the, going through here. Um, uh, by the way, um, Uh, You know, the the Lord promises in verse five where it says, for I say the Lord will be under a wall of fire roundabout and check out the last phrase we read and will be the glory in the midst of her. So this tells us about a time period where God's glory is in the midst of Jerusalem. Um, Now this becomes very specific because we know when the glory is in Jerusalem. What book of the Bible do we read where the glory of the Lord just lifted up and left Jerusalem. Ezekiel, The book of Ezekiel, remember that? We, we just, it was one of the sad chapters where the, the glory of the Lord is kind gonna, of, just took off. It was gone, out for, for you know. And that, that was because Israel was in rebellion and the glory never returned. We did a whole Sunday service on this. When did the glory return after the Ezekiel exit of the glory of the Lord? When did the glory return? Palm Sunday, remember that? Palm Sunday, the glory of the Lord—that is, Jesus went into the temple, and that's the glory of the Lord. We talked about that. That's why, remember, they, the, the Lord said, the, "You know, through the, the, uh, the prophet, uh, the glory of the latter will be greater than that of the former." Um, the Solomon's temple was great, but Zerubbabel's temple, which remember, was kind of a, a lower version architecturally. Um, how could the old men be crying and the young men be rejoicing? And the Lord said, because this temple is gonna be greater because the glory is gonna fill this temple. And that's when Jesus came. So we know there's two time periods. The time where Solomon built the temple, the glory of the Lord was in the Holy of Holies until it left in Ezekiel. Um, um, And that happened, by the way, in Ezekiel 9.3 for you Bible note takers. Ezekiel 9.3 and Ezekiel 10, verse 19 And Ezekiel 11, verse 23 talks about the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. Um, So when did the glory return? Uh, When Jesus went into the temple. But then when is the next time? Jesus, when he ascended and went into heaven, the temple was no longer filled with his glory. So when is the next time when Jesus, his glory is going to fill the temple? Anyone? Yeah, the millennial kingdom, the second coming of Christ, when Jesus comes and rules and reigns. Uh, for a 1,000 years uh, on the Temple Mount. Um, we, see, we read about that in the book of Revelation. We read about it in the book of Daniel. Uh, by the way, you say, but Perth, there's no temple in Jerusalem. Well, it's gotta be built. And I believe that'll be built and started to be built uh, at the beginning of the tribulation, the seven-year period uh, called the tribulation. And there's a, a treaty that's gonna be signed. Daniel chapter nine talks about that. Um, did you see uh, uh, on Easter there was a big uh, clash on the Temple Mount. It was bloody and brutal. Um, Jerusalem Post, again, article, April um, 2022, when blood spills on Passover and Easter, it's time to build the temple. This is the Jerusalem Post, their main newspaper. Like It's time to build the temple. Why? Well, um, you know, uh, uh, the opinion on this um, article, uh, what is Hamas's greatest fear? That Israel will start to build the temple. That, that's their number one concern. And, and really all of Islam has that concern. Um, one would have hoped the article says that yesterday's unique convergence of Passover, Easter and Ramadan would have led to a wonderful day of peace and brotherhood in the spiritual capital city of Jerusalem. Alas, any dream of religious harmony on a day, holy to all three great Abrahamic faiths was shattered by Muslim rioters who turned the Temple Mount into a bloody battlefield, hurling stones at Jewish worshipers and Israeli vehicles. It was really a horrible thing. Um, people died on Easter on the Temple Mount. So the Jews are saying, it's time for us to build a temple. Like those are fighting words. Um, but um, that's gonna happen. We know that there will be a temple built uh, and we're seeing modern day birth pains right now before that actually happens. Um, so, Uh, back to this vision three, we see the measuring line. He's measuring Jerusalem uh, because that's gonna be where God is gonna be. And he goes on in verse six. Ho, ho. Oh, apparently Santa Claus is coming (laughs) to Jerusalem as well. (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, by the way, when you see this, uh, like w- when the scriptures say, ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the water. He that hath the money, come to thee by and eat. That, that whole ho thing in the Bible, uh, it, it, it's, it's a sense of awe. When you say one ho, you're in awe. But if you say ho, ho, then you're like, wow, I'm in total awe. Um, that's the idea, okay? So you kind of have to get that. That's something we don't really say. Uh, we just say, if it's mildly funny, you go ho, ho, ho. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, but in those days, it's like, wow, this is amazing. I'm standing in awe. So he says, ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. And the Lord did that. He scattered the nations, um, uh, the Jews over all the nations, especially uh, a lot of Jews went up north to Russia of all places. A lot of Jews have fled even in, in the last few months um, uh, from those places of Ukraine and even Russia, the Jews are still fleeing to Israel, which is all part of God's prophecy. Um, when we talk about the um, the nation of the north there, uh, those that connect, when it says, um, come forth, flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. Some see this connection with Ezekiel 38. If you go directly north of Jerusalem and you just keep driving perfectly north, you end up in Moscow. Um, that's kind of an important thing because that's Ezekiel 38. Talks about the nation from the north will have a hook in her jaw, the bear will be drawn down into Israel. That's, that's all relating to the Ezekiel 38. Um, if, 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 I'm, if some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about, um, that's Okay. Uh, that, that's the way we all uh, kind of see the Bible uh, and it makes it fun. But the, the more you get into it, the more these dots start to connect. And if you were with us in our Ezekiel 38 study, then this kind of makes more sense. If you weren't, then you don't know probably what I'm talking about, but that's okay. Uh, it'll all come in time. So, um, so uh, verse 15, he goes on. Um, not, I'm sorry, not for 15. Where am I here? Verse seven, I was on the wrong page. Uh, verse seven. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwelleth with the daughter of Babylon, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you, for he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. Um, Interesting um, that we, we seem to be going back to the nations that are those horns. Remember the horn nations? Um, and the Lord's saying, you know, the, these nations that have spoiled and troubled you. And, and the Lord makes it personal here. He says, when you messed with Israel, you could almost say it's like you poked me in the eye. Um, that's an interesting uh, sort of phrase there. The Lord of hosts saying this. The Lord of hosts is the Lord of armies, if you recall. Zechariah uses this phrase more than anybody in the Bible. The Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And he says, You've, you know, you that spoiled my people for he that toucheth you, the Jews, you touch the apple of his eye. You're poking him in the eye. Um, what do these record setting events have in common? The 10 costliest insurance events in US history, the 12 costliest hurricanes in US history, three of the four largest tornado outbreaks in US history, and two of the largest terrorist, terrorist events in history. What do all those things have in common? Well, as it turns out, books have been written about this. All happened on the same day or within 24 hours of the United States putting pressure on Israel to trade land for peace. That's kind of an interesting thing. The whole books have been written by experts tracking when the United States treats Israel badly and pokes them in the eye. How within twenty four hours something cataclysmic happens, and that's why I always cringe when I hear our president or you know the leaders of our country we think we need to split Jerusalem in half, like like when you know Barack Obama said we need to go back to the nineteen sixty seven borders, which is basically saying we're going to chop Israel in half or pardon me, Jerusalem in half. That's that's what he's saying. Um, you know, if you go back to the sixty seven borders. Uh, It's ridiculous, like Israel, there's places in Israel where their border, the thickness of their country would be less than nine miles wide, nine miles. If you go back to the 67 borders and Israel uh, cannot defend herself with 67 borders for you that know your geopolitics. Um, It's interesting in Zechariah um, chapter 12, uh, verse nine, it says, and it shall come to pass, in that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Um, this, is, this is the Lord saying, you poke me in the eye, I'm gonna destroy you. You poke my children of Israel in the eye. Uh, poking at Jerusalem uh, is something the Lord does not take lightly. Um, by the way, did you know that the touching of the eye um, uh, is the fastest human response? As it turns out, you're like, if somebody, you know, something flies at you, your blinking of an eye is The fastest thing a human can do is twitch their eye or blink their eye in defense. That's the fastest thing you got, um, as it turns out. Um, and that's the imagery the Lord uses, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, those that try to handle Jerusalem and tell Jerusalem what to do, the Bible calls that, that uh, cup of trembling. Zechariah 12, we'll read this in a few weeks. Zechariah 12 too, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. This is talking about the future. Uh, when those nations come against Jerusalem. Um, God is not done with the, the Jews. He loves the Jews. They're still the apple of his eye. Don't fall for what some of these other you know, uh, people that believe that God has done with the Jews and the church has replaced Israel. That's a horrible um, worldview and I'll tell you why. Because then it gives you fair game to go ahead and poke Israel in the eye or poke the Lord in the eye by treating Israel badly. And that's why the Catholics by the way, the Catholics believe they, the Catholic Church has replaced the Jews. That's their, they're the sort of the pinnacle of replacement theology. Um, there's a lot of others, you know, pro- Protestants uh, as well, M- many of the um, most of the presbyterians and others are all, you know, replacement theology people. But they believe the Catholic Church, that's why you'll hear the Pope say stuff like, you know, they need to give over the land and give back Jerusalem to the Muslims and stuff because they they feel like God's done with the Jews. Um, And so they speak against the Jews, which little do they know, the Pope is poking the Lord in the eye every time he does that. And same with our president, when when our presidents talk about that. Um, That's why I wonder, I just wonder, love him or hate him, Donald Trump treated the Jews as nice as a president as in my lifetime. Uh, he cared more about the Jewish people in Israel than any president by far in my lifetime. And we were deliriously in a time of prosperity, uh, it seems, compared to now. If you compare just you know a year later uh, where we are now, it's kind of amazing. Like it's shocking uh, how bad things have, have gotten uh, since then. Uh, with a change of an administration, with a change of an opinion on Jerusalem and the Jews and what we do with them. Kind of interesting. I don't think that's coincidence. I think that's God Well, Wins. Uh, well, here we go. We're gonna keep moving here. Verse nine. Um, For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them and they shall be a spoil to their servants and you shall know that the Lord of hosts sent me. Man, um, the, the, the idea of the Lord shaking his hand, Lord of armies, uh, that, that's kind of like, <clears throat> uh, that's what it means to shake his hand. Uh, it's not a, not a big battle. It's just a squish, more, more like verse nine there. Verse 10, and, and it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I will come and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. Question, what time are we talking about there? That's the millennial kingdom, and it's really clear. um, Because of the the things that are said there, it's just super clear. Um, When is the Lord going to dwell in the midst of thee? Millennial, we already established that. But also this description just makes me glad. Many nations... You know, after the rapture of the church, then the judgment of the nations in the tribulation period, there's gonna be wrath and judgment put on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And then the nations that survive, which are gonna be very small, um, you know, more than two thirds of the population of the earth will be destroyed in the tribulation. Um, And uh, so whatever's left, at the end of the the tribulation, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, all the nations will, will repent and turn to the Lord and the the Revelation book of Daniel, Daniel chapter nine talks about what the millennial kingdom is gonna look like. There's gonna be an end of sin. That sounds good to me. Wouldn't that be great to have an end of sin? That's gonna happen in the millennial kingdom according to Daniel chapter nine. Um, Everlasting righteousness will be brought in, it says in Daniel chapter nine. So that's why even the Gentile nations are, are there rejoicing with the Jews because the nations shall be joined to Jehovah in that day. What a glorious time that's gonna be. Um, well, uh, in verse 12 and 13, we have two callings. Um, it says in verse 12, the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land and shall choose Jerusalem again. Um, be silent, O f- all f- flesh, before the Lord for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. So um, there's two callings. First in verse 10, you have sing and rejoice. But then in verse 13, you have, "Be silent, o, o, all flesh, before the Lord, for He is raised up out of his holy habitation." Silence or singing. which one? Um, I don't know, but it seems like there's going to be people that have different callings. Uh, I like that about the, the church today. Some of you are a little more silent than others. Others of you are singers. And I have to be careful, I, and, and this is an excuse, by the way, for you to come to church and just fold your arms and during worship and say, oh, I'm waiting for the teaching to come because I'm not a singer." No, the Bible says make a joyful noise. It doesn't say make a beautiful sound. Um, and some of you are really good at that. We, we're, some of us are great at that, making a joyful noise. Uh, but, um, but all that to say, there's, those have two callings, the sing and rejoice people, but also the silence and being still. There's gonna be a sense of awe when God fills his holy habitation in Jerusalem. There's gonna be a sense of awe where there's gonna be a moment of silence, it seems, there, um, uh, still and silent. Pretty cool. Well. Um, All that to say, uh, you say, why did you call that the measuring line, Brett? Um, It has to do with the property to be reclaimed by God in the millennial kingdom. He measures Jerusalem and the Lord's gonna take that back and fill the Jerusalem with his glory. The measuring, it's almost like, you know, when they, that that term, I forget exactly how they say it. You know, um, when there's an election and they're running for president, uh, if you feel like you got it, then they say they start measuring the drapes or whatever. Uh, That's kind of what the Lord is doing here. He's measuring Jerusalem saying, this is mine. I'm gonna move in here. That's what he's doing. Uh, that's why it's called the measuring line. Well, that brings us to Zechariah chapter three. Um, and we've seen three visions so far. We're not quite through the eight yet. i uh, getting a little worried that we might not cover them all tonight. <laughs> um, but uh, the rider and the myrtle tree, number one, are you guys still with me? That's the first one. The four horns and the four carpenters or craftsmen. Um, and then number three, the measuring line. Um, and the Lord uses... Um, Um, the previous vision to clarify the next vision. So vision one was to protect Israel. Vision two, who will protect Israel? The craftsmen, the carpenters. Vision three, he's measuring it out and his rule from Jerusalem. and, And he's saying, I'm gonna make things right for those who poke my people, poke me in the eye by treating my people bad. So the Lord is all about protecting his people, the Jews, coming and ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. The next two visions deal with two men um, uh, the problem, these two men are flawed. Man number one, Joshua the high priest, who's the religious leader. Man number two is Zerubbabel, who's the civil or political uh, leader. Um, and, um, and so we're gonna see both of these guys, but they both present sort of a problem. So we have vision number four here in Zechariah chapter three, verse one. And we're gonna call this one, of course, we already called it this on Sunday morning and Saturday, the God's courtroom. Verse one, it says, and God, he show, or pardon me, and he showed me, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him, he said, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed them with the garments. Um, And the angel of the Lord stood by. And that's where we landed on last Sunday, Um, and just a quick overview, if you recall, the the courtroom scene uh, had these key characters. The judge was the Lord, Joshua was the accused, the prosecuting Satan, and then the defense attorney is Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. Um, And now, um, uh, a word of exhortation from the Lord as we continue in verse six. Um, uh, It says here in verse six, and the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou will walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, then thou shalt also judge my house and shalt also keep my courts. And I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by." So now the angel of the Lord speaks. Remember, he didn't need to speak to have um, Joshua's clothes changed. Why did the, the uh, angel of the Lord not have to speak to have the clothes changed? Anybody? Because he already paid the price. Jesus paid the price. He was a living defense. The holes in his hands and, and that was the angel of the Lord is Jesus, the defense attorney. But now this is, this, is the, this is the faith without works is dead thing. Now the high, uh, pardon me, the angel of the Lord turns to Joshua and says, okay, now that you've been given robes of righteousness, if you would, he gives him a charge here in verses six and seven saying, now if you will walk in my ways and keep my statutes, then you'll be saved. Nope, doesn't say that. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments, then you'll have a new robe of righteousness. Does it say that? No. See, the salvation part has already taken place. Now he's being asked to follow the word of the Lord. And what is it gonna do for him if he does that? He's gonna be able to be used in ministry. See, that's the thing. If if you wanna be used in ministry, we talked about that. Can you go on in sinning and still go to heaven? Well, you better hope so, because we all do that. We all sin uh, daily. And uh, you better hope we go to heaven even after we're saved. But well, then you say, well, why should not I just keep sinning? Cause sin messes you up and it's really bad for you. And God tells us what hurts you and is bad for you. That's one reason. But another reason is, is if you're just taking up sin, it takes you out of contention for ministry, for service. And that's why um, we see here, Joshua's basically told the Lord, now that you're clean, I want you to stay clean. Um, you know, you moms know what I'm talking about. Have you ever just cleaned up a mess and then the kids run through and it's like the mess you just cleaned up is just freshly now messed up again? It's like, man, this thing, you know, uh, uh, getting ready for the kids for church, getting all polished up on a Sunday morning and they happen to find that mud puddle on the way to the car. That's that's like a normal attraction for kids. Uh, that's But that's normal people too. We're saved by grace. We're given these robes of righteousness and then we go find a mud puddle of sin. Um, but, if we don't stay clean and pure and stuff, will we lose our salvation? No, but we can, because uh, Jesus said it is finished. He died once for all sin. But um, then, shall, should we just go keep partying and sinning? Then no, because it's going to hurt our ability to serve the Lord. Um, that's why Romans six, what I mentioned on Sunday, Romans six fifteen through eighteen. Um, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. In other words, you'll be the servant of sin or the servant of the Lord. His servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that uh, form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. So sin takes away your ability to serve in righteousness. Um, so uh, the whole once saved, always saved, can you lose your salvation question? Um, I, I always love it when our Calvinists and our Arminiists, uh bash heads and they argue about, can you lose your salvation? Um, if you ask me, it depends on who you are. If you say, Brett, do you believe in eternal security? I will say, yes, absolutely. But do you think you can lose your salvation? I don't even wanna play that game because it makes me nervous to even talk about it. Um, if a person wants to, if they got saved and they accepted Jesus at camp at fifth grade, and then when they're 18 years old, they say, I deny God and I will, then we could argue about, well, did he ever really know the Lord? Was he ever really saved? Did he lose his salvation? Uh, to me, that's a, a, a crazy argument. I don't even wanna play with that one because it's, it's ridiculous to even play around with that. I'd rather just you know, do what Jesus said, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. So um, the Lord has saved us by his grace, um, but we don't wanna be out of contention for serving him because we just keep sinning. Um, Joshua was saved, but he was not to be used um, because he he had that propensity to be dirty. So so the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus, is saying, dude, you gotta stay clean if you wanna be used. Um, So it's not as much about salvation now we're talking about, we're talking about being used. Uh, verses six and seven. Are you guys with me on that? That's important. Um, that's why, by the way, I think if you're in ministry, especially pastors, um, they're held to a higher standard, and they should be. Um, you know, it's interesting to see all these, you know, um, moral failures of pastors and what have you. And and um, some people try to act, and some pastors even try to act. Well, you know, everybody sins or whatever. Yeah, that's true. But if you're in the ministry, you are called to a higher standard, and uh, and, and you can disqualify yourself. Uh, from ministry, um, if, if there's a uh, moral failure that's happening, um, that, that's sad. We're seeing stuff like that happen uh, constantly. And there's podcasts and all kinds of shows on TV, uh, the showing that, um, sad to say. Well, verse eight, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men uh, wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. Question: Who's the branch? Jesus. Jesus. That's always right. Yep. Um, uh, let me give you some branch scriptures real quick. Isaiah chapter four verse two. I've done old teachings on the branch, uh, by the way. Uh, In that day shall the branch of the Lord, Isaiah says, be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the earth shall be excellent comely for them that escaped Israel. Um, this is speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. Isaiah 11, uh, verse one, there shall come forth a root out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Jeremiah 23, five, behold the day shall come, saith the Lord, I will raise unto David a righteous branch um, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. Jeremiah thirty-three, fifteen. In those days, and at that time, I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. The the branch is Jesus, but it often is speaking of the branch that's gonna come in the millennial kingdom, and that's kind of what we're reading about here. Um, Verse nine goes on. It says, for behold, the stone um, that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall even be seven eyes, Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. And in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, you shall call every man his neighbor under the vine, under the fig tree. Um, In this final part of the vision number four, God's courtroom, we see um, Jesus again, and he's pictured, again, you're like, man, this is weird dream stuff. Zachariah's weird dream. He sees a stone with seven eyes. That's a little weird. Um, and, uh, and I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts. What's, what's the stone with seven eyes? Well, again, uh, textual constancy um, is what the Bible kind of requires. And this is, this is not unfamiliar. Revelation chapter five, verse six. I beheld, and lo in the midst of the throne and four beasts, In the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Um, And look at it, it says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. You say, well, this is Jesus, the lamb that had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes. Don't go and paint this. I always crack up when artists go, oh, I need to paint that. It's not meant to be painted. you I've seen these crazy it looks like LSD trip artwork <laughs> Uh, that people are trying to paint the Bible. Don't do that. Um, The Bible's not doing it for a painting. It's doing it for, for, they're they're all things with meaning. And I think a lot of well-meaning artists have tried to do this, uh, but it comes out hideous. And there's Jesus. He's like a lamb with blood, with horns and seven eyes, uh, with fire coming out of his mouth and a sword. Like pretty pretty soon people are like, yeah, I don't want any part of that. Uh, um, But it's not about the actual imagery itself is what the imagery is saying. Um, And the seven spirits of God, if you're wondering what those are, Uh, you need to listen to my teaching in Revelation 5-6 because we don't have time tonight to go into the seven spirits. Uh, But they're not literal seven eyes. Eyes speak in the Bible of insight, knowledge, and depth. That's what the eyes are speaking of there. And seven is the number of what? Completeness. Jesus is complete, especially when it comes to insight, uh, uh, knowledge, and depth. That's the idea here. So um, basically, you know, we've got the vision number four here, God's courtroom, um, and that's, uh, that's, that's kind of the, the fourth vision out of eight. So we, we didn't get through them all. Um, now, um, now uh, verse 10 says, in that day, uh, when is the day uh, the cross will be seen in its fullest? Have you thought about that? When will we see the fullness of the cross? Some of us might say right now, because man, look at, I'm a, I was a horrible sinner and I've been saved by grace. And I wouldn't argue with you too much on that. I, I think we see the fullness of the cross in the sense that we're fully saved and we're going to heaven. But some would argue that the fullness of the cross will be seen, verse 10, in that day, verse 10, say, the Lord of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. What, what's that all about? Um, when is the cross going to be seen in its fullest? In the millennial kingdom. That's when we're going to see it at its fullest peak, I think, which is going to be glorious. Daniel chapter 9. Um, this is that scripture I was referring to earlier. Uh, better go over it before we're done. Daniel 9 24. This is the millennial kingdom. 70 weeks are determined by thy people, thy holy city, to finish the transgression. That's an end of sins. To make an end of sins. To make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy." By the way, some people try to argue that prophecy's already sealed up. The preterists and some of the amillennialists say, ah, oh, Bible prophecy its not for today. It's, all this stuff's already come to pass, which is, if you look at what's going on in the world today, that's kind of a ridiculous statement. Uh, I can understand why they would have said that maybe 500 years ago, and try to make that case. But today, man, prophecy's unfolding right before our very eyes. Um, So there's a sealing up of the vision and prophecy, which we've yet to see. Even some of the stuff Zachariah is talking about um, are still, in fact, uh, yet to have happened in the future. Um, So uh, all that to say, our next next, uh, vision or whatever we're gonna see is the vision of the lamp and the trees, but we'll save that for next week uh, in chapter four. Well, Lord, we, um, we read about the millennial kingdom, your coming, the, the temple in Jerusalem, your glory filling the temple. Um, Lord, it's almost surreal to us to even think about such a day. But Lord, we, we know it's true as we see what's going on in the world, even as your word tells us it's gonna unfold. We see the measuring of Jerusalem and we see the people of Israel gathering in the, in the land as you said they would in the last days. Um, still dry bones gathering unbelief mostly in Israel, but we know there's a day where all of Israel will be saved and life will be brought back to the Jews in Israel. But until then, I pray that we would be busy about your kingdom, serving you, walking with you. Lord, I pray that we, as you've given us robes of righteousness, I pray that we'd, we'd seek those things that are pure and not jump in the mud puddle of sin because we wanna be used by you, Lord, and effective in ministry. So help us with that, Lord. I pray your blessing upon these, your people, even as your word is is, um, like water that washes us. May we be cleansed by your word even tonight, having spent this time on a Wednesday night. So we commit all this to you. Thank you, Lord, for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.